0: So I want to talk tonight about going home and about some of the very subtle balances that we experience in meditation that are reflected in living a life of of mindfulness and compassion. I often think that as I contemplate meditation practice that it's a little bit like learning how to sit in the heart of a paradox, or many paradoxes, the paradox between action and effort and investigation and then being at ease, letting things be, letting go, between passion and relaxing, between trying and not trying. There's this place of balance that captures... These, these different energies and how we we work with them, how we move with them, and how we live with them—it's a dynamic interplay of different forces. One whole aspect of that set of balances has to do with effort or energy. It has to do with having a vision, having a sense of aspiration going beyond the normally constricted or constrained sense of what we can do, opening up. Usually, you know, we think of ourselves as not being capable of all that much, unless we imagine ourselves in some kind of extraordinary circumstance, like a kind of dire necessity we imagine we'll be able to perform, we'll we'll do what we need to do, but we rarely, if ever, imagine the depth of what we are capable of in an ordinary day. I think sometimes of uh, Gandhi who said, if we grant nothing, we get nothing. What is that sense of possibility that leads us onward, that doesn't allow us to be stuck, that says we can try, we shouldn't pull back, we shouldn't withdraw, we shouldn't withhold, We have to come forward. We have to imagine. We have to have a sense of daring, of boldness. We need to not lose that in order to remake our lives, in order to remake this world. We have to be wholehearted. Joseph spoke about our teacher, Deepama, who was a, a tiny little thing. There's some wonderful pictures around. There's actually a book that uh, has been compiled about her life. And there's a wonderful picture of her and Joseph, where Joseph towers over her. And she's like this little smidgen of a person next to him with this incredible sense of strength and commitment and endeavor. I went to see her back in 1974 when I was leaving India for what I was absolutely certain was going to be a short trip back to the United States to get a little bit healthier, to get some money, to renew my visa, and then go back and spend the entire rest of my life in India. So I went to see her, really just to get her blessing for this very, very short trip. And she looked at me and she said, when you go back to America, you'll be teaching with Joseph. And I said, no, I won't. (laughs) And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. (laughs) She said, yes, (laughs) "Yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. In my mind, I had discovered something in that life in India which was incomparable, and I loved being a student. I couldn't fathom that I could ever, ever be a teacher. And so I said, no, I won't. (laughs) And she said, yes, you will. And then she said two things to me. One was, she said, you really understand suffering, and that is why you should teach. And then she said, you can do anything you want to do. It's only your thinking that you won't be able to. That's what's going to stop you. And that was my blessing. I went back home for what turned out to be 28 years or something like that, (laughs) rather than the very short trip that I had imagined. You can do anything that you want to do. And here was a woman who had experienced such incredible suffering. And and loss and, and pain and fear and distress and somehow that kind of conviction wasn't ever destroyed, no matter what she went through. And so as Joseph said, you know, she crawled up the temple stairs in order to learn how to meditate. There's some aspect of that kind of valor, that that kind of power of mind that is really essential. Many things will require effort. Will require, they will require heroic effort. We have to not have a limited sense of aspiration. One of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher, Nyesha Kem, Rinpoche, or known as Kempo, used to emphasize that a lot with us. He would basically say, why have such a, a small, kind of meager, measly Sense of aspiration. Why wish for such small things? Why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? That why not becomes a big confrontation. Why not? Why not open beyond that very circumscribed sense of what we're capable of? Why not look deeper? the very holding of that sense of aspiration is not only a challenge, but is a tremendous upliftment. It's the very energy that will actually lift us out of the circumstances of our life so that we're not defined by them. We're not simply identified with the roles that we play or the misfortune that hit us that very day, that particular day. It's that kind of energy that will allow us to go beyond. William James said, We measure ourselves by many standards, our strength and intelligence, our wealth, even our good luck are things which warm our hearts and make us feel ourselves a match for life. But deeper than all such things, and able to suffice unto itself without them, is the sense of the amount of effort we can put forth. One who can make none is but a shadow. One who can make much is a hero. For ourselves, in our own sense of what we are capable of, and and I think really in this world, we don't live in a time when we can afford to have a small sense of aspiration. Where the people who think that we can make a better world who have determination to to transform this world can't afford to feel defeated or that it's impossible or we just need to give up because nothing's going to change it's very important all of us had some kind of aspiration to get here, although there was somebody in in the uh, Meta retreat, who came because he, he wanted to go on vacation and his friends told him to come here. <laughs> I don't know what he said to them when he got home. But, <laughs> but that's an extraordinary circumstance in the usual run of things. We do have a sense of, of determination, of vision, of possibility. Or we would never do this very odd thing of come to a place like this. So that's one whole side of things, which is really very important. And the other side of things is equally important, which is about letting go, being at rest, relaxing, not getting entangled in the normal ways that we get entangled. There's a very big difference between a sense of of conviction and passion and aspiration and a sense of expectation and judgment. And the difference is this ability to really let go, to acknowledge the truth of how things actually are. That same Tibetan teacher, Kenri Kenribache, had another saying, talking about this kind of rest, being able to just be aware of what is and let that awareness spark whatever action one might take, not being overwrought by changing circumstances. He said... Rest your weary mind, rest in natural great peace this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Makes you want to take a rest, doesn't it? (laughs) We come to understand that It's like fulfillment in our spiritual practice and fulfillment in our work in the world isn't a question of of will. It's a question of intention and balance and patience. We put forth effort, but it needn't be strained and hurtful effort. It's what the Buddha was capturing when he talked about right effort. It's the ability to actually experience what is happening without the continual creation of separation, of opposition, of struggle. Because in that closeness to what is happening, in that relationship to what is happening, comes wisdom, comes understanding. When we can be with our experience, when we can abide with our experience, when we can open to our experience, then we will understand. From that understanding, we can make choices, then action can come that's that's much more informed. We have to to unite with, to connect to the truth of what is actually happening. And that means having some measure of peace with it. That's the balance. It's a kind of faith or trust to recognize that we can only work with what is actually presenting itself. If our distrust gets strong enough, then we panic. We feel impoverished. We feel almost a desperate need to, to fill a gap inside of ourselves by making something different. So sometimes we say, if you feel panic, check the level of your faith. Check the level of your trust. See if you can relax some and observe. Give our experiences some time. See how they how they move how they transform all by themselves it's very difficult for us to have that sense of of relaxing of actually being with what is it feels like apathy it feels like well, we don't get to complain for one thing <laughs> it feels like being acquiescent that we're lazy we're negligent we're no good all of those things. But it's very crucial to come to explore this kind of rest as well. I can remember when I was practicing loving-kindness meditation in Burma. I had a very illuminating experience. I was doing walking meditation this particular time and I felt horrible. I felt just this huge amount of tension. So much so that I finally just stopped walking to look at the tension. And after some time, I realized that what I was doing was I was trying to do my practice and make it work instead of just do the practice and let it work. It was an incredible burden that I was adding on to the experience that wasn't actually making it any more fulfilling. We can relate that way often to our practice constantly checking it is it working is it working fast enough how am i doing was that really love i don't know if that was really love yesterday it might have been a little flicker of love but today there was no love i know that how do i get the love you know blah. and not only in the metta practice but in vipassana practice as well to let go of our efforts to manipulate to control to come back, to settle back. It's not so easy, but it's very important. It reminds me of this saying of T.S. Eliot, in which he says, for us there is only the trying, the rest is not our business. This has been echoed by every teacher I have ever studied with, who have all said in one form or another, you just practice. Mindfulness or loving kindness or you just pay attention or you just be with what is and the dharma, the laws of nature, the truth of how things are, that will take care of the rest. We need to do what we can do, which is a lot. It's show up, be present, be earnest, be honest. And beyond that, we have to let go. It's so much like trying to help somebody trying to be there for somebody, trying to make someone's suffering go away. I once said to one of my Tibetan teachers, when someone I knew that I cared about a lot was suffering greatly in a way that didn't seem to be coming to an end anytime soon, and I said to this teacher, you know, it doesn't seem fair. Why aren't we given one person in the world, who's suffering we can just make go away. It's like that's our one, and we point at them and say, poof, it's gone. And the teacher looked at me and said, that's why we call it samsara. Samsara is a Buddhist word for this round of birth and death and continual becoming and, and constant change, life outside of our control. He said, that's why we call it samsara. And of course I thought, You know, not that there wouldn't be problems with my model either. It's like, how do you choose the one, you know? But actually, this is the way it is, isn't it? I think my quintessential example of compassion came from this experience. Many of you, I know, have heard me talk about it when um, the Dalai Lama came to visit here in 1979. We were young and had this Buddhist center. And so being young, we had this habit of dashing off these letters to these very eminent, august figures, thinking, oh, they'll never come. And very often, they would actually come. So we wrote a letter to the Dalai Lama's office saying, well, you know, we have a Buddhist center. And this was his first trip to the United States. And we said, well, would would he like to come? Thinking he'll never come. And then we got a letter back saying, well, he's coming. <laughs> and even though it is nothing like it is now in terms of security and uh, so on. Still, it was quite intense for us. We had a blockade Pleasant Street, and we had state troopers patrolling the roofs with guns, and um, it was an extremely intense scene. And just before he came, I'd been in a car accident, and amongst my other injuries, I had broken a bone in my foot, and I was using crutches, which I was not very dexterous with. So the day came that, He was arriving, and we had this huge, intense scene with the state troopers and the guns and the whole thing, and and I was standing way in the back of about 100 people leaning on my crutches, feeling very, very, very sorry for myself, thinking, well, I co-founded the center, and I have to be way in the back, and, you know, I'm such a klutz. If I wasn't such a klutz, I could be in the front, but I am such a klutz, and, you know, I was in the front, I'd probably fall on my face in front of him. That would be even worse, you know, so I'd better stay in the back. But this is terrible. I'm way in the back. So that was my mind state at the time. And then his car pulled up, and he got out in the midst of this very zoo scene. And he did something I've seen him do many times since, but that was the first time I'd ever seen him do it. And that was, he seems to have a kind of radar for who's suffering the most. In a crowd, and he just goes there. And that was me. <laughs> it's like looking back, I really can hardly remember him having time to see me visually, but it almost felt like one fluid movement. He got out of the car, made a beeline for me, cutting through the crowd, came over to me, took my hand, looked me in the eye, and said, What happened? And it was such an extraordinary moment because I saw so clearly that he could not make the injury not have happened. He could not make me any more skillful in my use of the crutches. But that terrible, gnawing sense of being unseen, unrecognized, uncared about, in the back, it was gone. Just with that gesture. And I really had a whole different sense of compassion from that time on. For all the many times when we cannot make the suffering go away, we cannot remake the universe according to our wishes, we have to admit, sadly enough, we're not in control of the unfolding of events. Still, there's a kind of presence that we can do that makes a difference. It may be physical presence. We may not even choose that. We may need a greater distance for one reason or another in our lives, but in terms of our hearts, there is a real presence. The Indian Saint, Neem Karoli Baba said, never throw anyone out of your heart. And my colleague, Sylvia Borstein, had an addendum. She said, never throw anyone out of your heart. You may throw them out of your life, but never throw them out of your heart. So that's what I mean by presence. It's not withdrawing, it's accepting. Yeah, you know what? I can't make it different, but not letting our powerlessness make us feel humiliated, make us withdraw, make us stop caring, make us throw someone out of our hearts. There's a whole level of rest, of acceptance, of seeing, yeah, this is how things are. I have to be with this. That is as important as that kind of dynamic intention to really be there, to be present, to make a difference in our lives and in someone else's. And somehow these two kind of energies come together in what might be called diligence. Once I was sitting in Nepal with a Tibetan teacher and somebody said, you know, it's really hard hearing all of these stories about people who lived a long time ago And the Buddha or some great saint would say one sentence or two sentences and poof, everyone was enlightened. It just seems so remarkable and so remote and I'll never get there. And the teacher said in response, if you want confidence, if you want faith in the fact that you will get there, you need to rest your faith on diligence. Diligence is that very steady application of our energy with the greatest of visions, the most open sense of aspiration, and the ability to let go, to let things take their course, to realize we're not in control, to be patient. Someone once asked the Buddha, how did you, Lord Buddha, cross the flood, meaning the flood of suffering? And the Buddha replied, Without lingering, friend, and without hurrying, I crossed the flood. And the the being asked, it wasn't a person, they say, it was a celestial being. They asked, How did you, without lingering and without hurrying, cross the flood? And the Buddha replied, Friend, when I lingered, then I sank. When I hurried, I was swept away. So not lingering, not hurrying, I crossed the flood. I love this example for its great sense of delicacy, of naturalness. We don't want to sink, we don't want to drown, and we also don't want to hurry, pushing forward in a a hasty or stressful manner because of expectation, because of self-judgment. It means step by step. It means holding both that sense of aspiration and the recognition that this is how dreams come true, actually. It's one moment after the next. This is the reality of transformation. If we use the moment that is in front of us, then that's real. Everything else is like telling a story of how inept we are and incompetent or how fantastic it's going to be someday to be free the truth has to be what is in front of us right now and to use that means to relate to it as best we can with greater awareness and with greater compassion Aung San Suu Kyi who's the leader of the democracy movement in Burma once said, a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying which I like quite a lot and actually we can only keep trying one moment at a time we have to be with what is before us the foundation of that making that real very often we say is having a daily sitting practice and theoretically of course that's not necessary In any moment, we can relate to what is happening with the habitual patterns of fear and anger and anguish and greed. Or in any moment with whatever is happening, we can relate in a very different way. That's true. But for most of us, what's also true (laughs) is that that remains pretty theoretical. And the way we bring it to life, the way we have it real, is by making it real in some dedicated period every day. And so we say, if it's at all possible, really try to sit every day. It doesn't have to be sitting, actually. It could be walking. But it's some period of time when we are bringing these values to life, when we are actually seeing what our experience of the truth might be. So we're no longer in that space of simply thinking about what somebody else said or stated. We're really looking at what is true for us. When I went to India for the first time, I was a, a student. I'd been a college student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and my trip to India was basically my junior year abroad. In my sophomore year, I'd studied Asian philosophy, and, which was basically a course in Buddhism. And I loved it, obviously, which sent me off to India. But I also went off to India with a kind of feeling that, oh, I know about Buddhism. I know what it's all about. You know, I'd done term papers on karma, and I'd had like a midterm exam on the law of dependent origination, um, which I'll talk about in a minute. I thought, oh, I know. I know what Buddhism is all about. Love dependent origination is basically a teaching about being bound or being free in any moment of existence. The Buddha said this is quite a simplification of it, but he basically said we experience the world in every moment in one of six ways through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and through what he called the mind or thinking. Imaging, things like that. So every moment of our existence, we experience the world in one of these six ways. And he said, we perceive each one of these moments as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. He then went on to say that our habit, when that experience is pleasant, whether it's a sight or a sound or a sensation in the body, whatever might be happening, when it's pleasant, our tendency is to grab it, to cling, to try to have control over it, to keep it from changing. And when that experience is unpleasant, our tendency is to strike out against it in anger or to recoil in fear, which is the same uh, mind state, just in a different form. And when that experience is neutral, we tend to go to sleep. We just space out. We disconnect. And then he said... We don't have to do that. When we experience pleasure, we can experience it fully without that extra thing. And when we experience pain, we can experience it fully without that extra thing of being so disheartened, so ashamed, so angry about it. And when what we're experiencing is basically neutral, we can wake up, we can connect, we can actually feel vital and alive with that neutral experience. That's a very interesting teaching because a lot of times people think, well, if you meditate a lot, then everything will kind of morph into this gray blob and you won't feel anything anymore. But that's not really what the teaching says. It talks about pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality, the full run of life, but without the same old reactions. So I thought, I know that. That's so cool. I had my midterm exam on that. I got a really good grade. And then I sat down to meditate. And when it was my knee pain, it was a whole different story. No longer was I happily contemplating, oh, I can relate to this painful sensation in a different way. This could be a really new life. I was enraged. I was terrified. I was overcome with all these feelings. It's a very different thing to study it in college than it is to live it. And that is what is crucial about sitting every day, is making it real, which takes humility and patience and diligence. But it is what breathes life into our spiritual practice. And ideally, one would be able to sit for a very long time each day my first teacher said we'll sit an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening and that worked actually because I was living in India and there was nothing else to do (laughs) but I honestly think the most important part of it is the everydayness of it for the very thing that I was just talking about if you only have 15 minutes it's still worth sitting for 15 minutes the trouble with sitting for just 15 minutes is that in a daily sitting, a common daily sitting, the first 15 minutes are usually filled with quite a bit of chatter, like, oh, I forgot to call so-and-so, I better call them as soon as I finish sitting, and once I call them, I better do that. And isn't that refrigerator really loud? I think that refrigerator's abnormally loud. I think I better call the repair person, because I think I need a new refrigerator, <laughs> You know, and that is just the common run, just like it is, some sittings here. If you sit just long enough to have that wash through, then it's still good. It's like kind of de-stressing as all of that stuff does wash through. But if you can sit for longer, then of course you have that effect, and then you have a base of a deeper quiet in which to explore your experience. So to really try each day to bring this to life, to practice. Sittings will feel very different at home just as they have here. Some feel great, concentration's strong, everything's peaceful, it's so wonderful, it's so serene. Sometimes it feels just terrible. We can't focus at all, we're sleepy. we're restless, we're bored, we're angry. So many things might happen But it doesn't matter because just as we are learning here, I have learned here, to accompany all of those feelings, all of those states, all of those situations with awareness, with love, with compassion, so we carry that out there as well. Maybe the most common scenario in people's minds as they leave is something like we go home, We're still quite concentrated. We sit every day for an hour. Everything is glorious. It's fantastic. It feels so good. And then something changes. You sit down. It doesn't feel very good. You are restless. You're bored. Something's wrong. And very often, people will just give up. They'll say, well, it's not working today. I'll try again tomorrow. Maybe you sit again the next day, and maybe... It feels really serene and wonderful. Maybe it doesn't. And you think, well, this doesn't work. When I have to go to work, I'll only practice on the weekends. You know that that'll be much better. And when Saturday comes around, I'll sit all day long. I won't answer the phone. I won't do anything. I'll just practice all day. Then Saturday comes around, and maybe you do, maybe you don't fulfill that dream. But even if you do, it may not be that your concentrations kick back in. It may not feel so great. And you think, well, I can't do this. This doesn't work. This is really dreadful. Or, you know, it only works on retreat. I better go back to Barry or something like that. And you just give up. I was very much in that dynamic when I was living in India, because when I was living in India I wasn't always on retreat. And I was sitting every day, but I was very judgmental about the content of those sittings, so that when the sittings felt good and wonderful and glorious, and I was so happy, I would think, oh, I'm going to live in India for the entire rest of my life, isn't that going to be nice? And when it was difficult, I would think, I can't do it, it's just not working, it's no good, or I'm no good, and... I finally went to this one teacher, Manindra, and described the the thing I had been doing. And he looked at me and he said, well, for you, I have just one piece of advice, and that is just put your body there. Whatever happens every day, just put your body there. Some days it's going to feel fantastic. Some days it's going to feel like a complete waste of time or worse. It doesn't matter. Just put your body there. Because in the end, it is a mystery. How one experience connects to the next, how our earnestness, our sincerity bears fruit in ways that we could not imagine. You have to just put your body there. There's a a story in the Tibetan tradition about a powerful bandit in India who, after countless successful raids, realized the terrible suffering that he had wrought. And he yearned for a way to atone for what he'd done, so he visited a famous meditation master. And he said to him, I'm a really terrible person. I'm in torment. What's the way out? What can I do? It said that the master looked at the bandit and then asked him what he was good at. And the bandit said, nothing, I'm not good at anything. The master said, nothing, you must be good at something. So the bandit was silent for a moment and then he said, actually there is one thing I have a talent for and that's stealing. So the master was very pleased and he said, good, that's exactly the skill you need now. Go to a quiet place and rob all your perceptions and steal all the stars and planets in the sky and dissolve them in the belly of emptiness, the all-encompassing space of the nature of mind. And as these stories all end so happily, within 21 days the bandit was fully enlightened and came to be regarded as a great teacher. What that story means is that If we're good at greed and we're good at jealousy and we're good at anger and we're good at fear and we're good at delusion, those are the things we have to use. We use them by paying attention to them. We have to look right into the heart of them. We have to go deep into them, but clearly, carefully, not being lost in them, because if we can do that, if we can bear witness to all of those states with compassion, with clarity, then we can be free no matter how many times they come, no matter how strong they might be, that long, long list of states that causes so much trouble are not things we need to be afraid of. We don't need to feel hopeless or or angry about them. We don't have to fall into great doubt about ourselves because of the arising or the frequent arising or the incessant arising of these qualities in our minds. They're the way of the mind. It's the conditioning of the mind. So, whatever happens as we sit there, it's actually okay. There's an old Chinese saying that goes to understand the nature of water, look at the waves to understand the nature of our hearts, our minds, our experience, our lives, we look at the waves. We don't have to flatten them out to make them go away. We can see right through them. If we look into the heart of that anger, that jealousy, that fear, that craving, we'll see change. We'll see insubstantiality. We'll see transparency. We have to hang in there to look at it. And so no matter what it feels like, that tremendous learning can be happening. Look at the waves. Maybe doubt is what we're good at, or self-doubt, or self-hatred. Look right into the heart of that. Let it teach us about what it means to feel hurt, to feel apart. Let it teach us about compassion. So sit every day. Then awareness will actually be our refuge. because just as in sitting, certainly in life, anything can happen. We know that. And in the effort to actually live our lives, be present for them, these are the very skills that we need. In the New York Times not too long ago, there was an article about how people are feeling after September 11th because of the truth of the kind of fear about terrorism that, that can pervade somebody's life. And it had this line, which I really loved. It said, Safety against something that can happen anytime, anywhere, and in any form is largely a psychological destination. I thought, oh yeah, it is largely a psychological destination. It reminded me of, on the flip side, something I'd read about um, St. Augustine, who said, if what you're looking for is everywhere, you don't need travel to get there, you need love. If we actually believe that a capacity for awareness if we actually believe that the truth of our lives is expressed in every moment of our experience, whatever that might be, we don't need to trade in that experience for something better. We don't need travel to get there. We need love. We need a transformed relationship with what is. And so we practice. There's a a tremendous happiness that comes. It's a very odd kind of happiness as we learn to pay attention in all of these ways. We experience it through sitting. We experience it through walking. One of the great truths of our ordinary experience is how all of these different activities can be infused with a sense of being present. I mean, How many times do we actually walk down the street and experience where we are rather than where we're going and what we're going to say and how we're going to do? What an amazing thing just to return all of that energy to ourselves and to be present. We experience that kind of happiness, which is the happiness of connection, of actually being there, by not just waiting. There are so many times when I'm leaving a retreat that I've been sitting myself. And I get into my car and start to drive, and I watch my hand go out to turn on the radio. And it's such an interesting moment, because the truth is that in that moment, I don't really want to hear any music or the news or anything. It's just that I'm no longer on retreat. And so that idea of doing nothing is somehow kind of grating, you know? I have to fill in the space somehow because it's too uncomfortable just to be silent. There are so many moments in our life like that where we're just filling in the space to make something happen rather than just being. And so to come back to our actual experience is, is a thing of great delight, And it's a kind of happiness that comes as we really reflect all of these teachings in how we live. The very foundation teachings of generosity and morality are actually taught as a way to bring joy and lightness and loving kindness into the mind. I say that when the Buddha would teach, he would always begin by teaching about generosity because it's something that we all can do. It doesn't just mean material generosity at all. It means that sense of openness or or presence where we actually acknowledge somebody, where we make a little bit of effort, maybe we smile, maybe we listen. There are so many ways in which that is expressed. And the teaching of morality is just the same thing. It's not considered that it's a kind of heavy burden that one must assume in order to be a righteous kind of Buddhist. But it's a a condition of delight, of joy. I mean, I think you probably know from at least one sitting in this retreat what it's like to recollect that thing you said that you really regret or the thing you did that you wish you could do over we do experience all of those those reflections those memories those understandings and we can do better because we have more awareness it's not to say that any of those practices are really easy they're not they demand a tremendous amount of of contemplation and and understanding and effort and love but that's what it means to have an awakened life rather than a life of, of being just mechanical or being cut off, being unaware there's a very crucial understanding in Buddhist teaching that's called being able to discern what is the path and what is not the path and that is more important than anything We make mistakes, all of us, and we have to begin again and again and again and again, all of us. But to know what is the path and what is not the path is the most fundamental understanding that we can have. Because then we can come back, then we can start again, then we can persevere, then we can go forward. If we don't understand, we will be constantly grasping. When I first started practicing meditation, when I went off to India from Buffalo, I had the idea, I don't even know how I had it, but I had the idea that for really good meditation to be happening, you had to be sitting bathed in a flood of white light. I went all the way to India for my white light, And then I got there and I wandered around for about three months looking for a teacher. And I finally found a teacher and entered this 10-day retreat and still no white light. And I had knee pain and I had back pain and I had tremendous grief and I had fear and I had sadness and had all kinds of things but no white light. And everything that I had, I felt scornful of or, or demeaning of and I was anxious and I was figuring out, well, how can I get that white light? And of course, nobody ever told me I had to have any white light, which of course I didn't. But it's so amazing to understand in one moment what is the path and what is not the path. That the path is actually not about acquiring experience and holding on to them and, and feeling separate and better than others. You know, what is the path? The path is something very different than that. And to always return to that. Whether we feel we have lived in harmony with it or not. It's okay. To come back to that understanding. You now, when we often tell those stories about Saira Upandita coming here in 1984 for the first time. And we had not met him before he came, Joseph and I. We invited him on the strength of the recommendation of certain friends. And he arrived, and the next day we entered a three-month retreat under his guidance. And he turned out, as you can tell from the stories, to be fierce and intense and, and demanding. And I couldn't believe it. Sometimes I think, what did we do? <laughs> he also had a kind of teaching style very predominantly so, where he would say the same thing again and again and again and again, six days a week, every day, until something shifted inside of you. And then he would go on to something else. And so when he came, I had been practicing quite ardently and intensively for about 14 years. And I would go in to see him and say whatever it was my experience was. And he would look at me and he would say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd think, I'm not a beginner. I've been practicing for 14 years. And That would be my interview. That would be all he'd say. And I'd leave and I'd come back in the next day with a whole other set of experiences and he'd look at me and he'd say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd think, I'm not a beginner. <gasps> now that would be it. I'd leave. And day after day after day, no matter what I said, he'd say, Well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I felt like I had this giant neon 14 flashing in my brain saying, I've been practicing for 14 years, I'm not a beginner. And then finally, one day, something did shift inside me. And I thought, oh, he's not insulting me, actually. It's good to be a beginner. It's good to have that sense of being open, being tender, being fully present, being... With what is happening, rather than saying, "Ah, oh, you know, I had this already, or I thought I got rid of that. What's that still doing here? And why aren't I having more of that?" No, oh, this is good. I like this. You know, let me keep this. And, you know, just to be a beginner. And I thought, "Oh, it's good to be a beginner." That's actually the path. And of course, the day I got that was the day he stopped saying it <laughs> and went on to do something else altogether. It's the most crucial understanding we can ever have. What is the path and what is not the path? Because then we can start again. Then we can apply our effort. Then we can open our aspiration. Then we can relax. Then we can be diligent. Come back to that understanding for ourselves and for the world as we we take this practice and we go on. I used to have the sense that mindfulness was way beyond me, that it was going to be somewhere out in my future, that if I worked hard enough and I was determined enough and, and I practiced diligently enough, that someday I was going to have a moment of mindfulness, like planting a flag on top of the mountain or something like that. And It was a tremendous transformation of my view and my understanding when I realized that it wasn't so inaccessible it wasn't so remote, it wasn't so far away. It's immediately present when we remember. It's something we all can do, it's something we all have done. The Buddha said that every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. We've had those moments many, many times, but we forget. We can remember through diligent practice. We remember through bringing it to life. We remember through sitting every day. And we remember through having one another. We remember through the strength of a community, which is really an extraordinary gift. I'll close with this little story of something that just happened to me recently where um, I'm going to New York City tomorrow, and I'm going to be living in New York City for most of the spring, except for this period when I'm back here teaching in May, and so I have to find an apartment for the spring. And I called a, a realtor um, a little while ago, about a month ago or something, and I said, I need an ap- apartment for the spring. And, and she said to me, if you don't mind my asking, what do you do for a living? Or just a very heavy New York accent. It was more like, if you don't mind my asking. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a lot like that. So that's always a moment for me because I think, oh, she's going to think I'm a flake, you know, and I'm not going to be able to pay the rent, and, you know, she's not going to trust me, she's not going to find me an apartment. So I said, well, to tell you the truth, I teach meditation. (laughs) And she said, oh, that sounds so interesting. (laughs) What is that, you know? (laughs) And and I said, well, this is what it is, and, you know, and, and she said, what kind? And I said, well, you sit down and you feel your breath, and... You know, and it's, um, you know, and you kind of relax and you center your attention on the breath and that helps you in all these different ways. And she said, Oh, maybe you can teach me. And I said, Yeah, that's really nice. So I called her just yesterday to say, You know, well, I'm, I'm coming into the city and, and do you have any apartments I can look at? You know, because I really need an apartment and, you know, and it's not that long before I'm actually moving in, you know, for three months. And, and do you, you know, it wasn't quite that anxious, but it had something like that. So she said, Sharon, are you breathing? <laughs> So, (laughs) she definitely was my teacher in that moment. And we do learn from one another, you know. We remind one another in the midst of some amount of turmoil or disappointment or uncertainty or anxiety, are you breathing, you know? We remind ourselves and we remind one another, and that is our really great gift. So let's sit together for a few minutes.